end of October already, which means the MFA application season is heating up. Most of the application deadlines are in the next couple of months, so today we've got another special episode on MFA applications for you. Last year, I had an extensive conversation with Katie Vishniak of readtheworkshop.com. In that episode, we discussed in depth each individual part of the MFA application. If you're planning to apply, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode. This year, I had the privilege of talking with Gregory Spatz, a highly successful writer and the director of the MFA program at Eastern Washington University in Spokane. Gregory wrote an article a few years back for Poets and Writers titled, The Teachable Talent, Why Creative Writing Can Be Taught. You'll hear him refer to Shan Ray a couple of times in this interview, who, if you don't know already, is an American Book Award-winning writer and one of Professor Spatz's former students. Further, Professor Spatz was gracious enough to answer a bunch of listener questions about what he looks for in an MFA application. And I have to be honest, I wish I had this information when I was applying. I think it's going to be super helpful for any of you working on applications this year. I hope you like it. And if you do, please reach out to us and let us know. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, we've got a special episode on the MFA application process, and I couldn't be more excited to be joined by Gregory Spatz, the director of the MFA program at Eastern Washington University in Spokane. Professor Spatz is the author of the collection of linked stories and novellas, What Could Be Saved, the novels Anukshuk, Fiddler's Dream, and No One But Us, and the short story collections Half as Happy and Wonderful Tricks. His stories have appeared in many publications, including The New Yorker, Glimmer Train Stories, Shenandoah, Epic, Kenyon Review, and New England Review. He's the recipient of a Michener Fellowship, an Iowa Arts Fellowship, a Washington State Book Award, and an NEA Fellowship in Literature. Further, Spatz plays the fiddle in the twice-Juno-nominated bluegrass band John Reichman and the Jaybirds. Professor Spatz, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad to be part of your series. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. But before we talk about your experience as a professor in an MFA program, I wanted to talk a bit about your time as a student in one. You attended the Iowa Writers Workshop in the 90s. What was your MFA experience like? What stands out to you now when you look back on your time in that program and the impact it had on you as a writer? Uh, it was, it was, um, it was a, a great couple of years. It was two years augmented by a third year as a missioner fellow, uh, missioner fellow. Um, so I actually hung around in town for three years. Um, and I mean, when I think about it, I think of like, it was very social. Um, it was also very lonely. It was really cold and it was also really hot. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, it's, um, it's an intense experience. The, the writer, the Iowa writers workshop was, was really pretty intense and, you know, awful and great kind of all and everything in between. 
and and you know way too much drinking and way too much socializing way too much attention to social stuff you, you know you should should tune all that out and just write and of course you can't and um yeah i mean it was great i learned a lot i don't you know i, I came into it at a funny point in my career where it was um i already had a book contract and i'd been publishing stories and i had an ma the the university of new hampshire at the time that i went to it only offered an MA in creative writing slash English literature. Okay. And that was where I did my first um, kind of stint as a, as an MFA student. And um, so when I came back to, to go to Iowa, it was really kind of with the, with the pretty express purpose of like, I wanted to be a teacher. And I knew that without an MFA, I was not going to be able to get a good teaching position. And so I'd been talking to a bunch of writer friends that I'd met at the McDowell Colony, and they were all were kind of telling me, you know, just go take a couple of years and, and do an MFA. Don't do a PhD. I mean, this, this may not, not be true anymore, but that, that was the case back in those times where it was like it was a better option to just get another MFA. And so I looked at it as like a couple of years to just write and hang out with writers, get better at writing and earn the MFA degree from the program that was going to get me a job um, at the end of it. And the, some of the, like the darkest points of it, you know, finishing after, after the two years I was there, my first book came out in the middle of it. And I had a story published in the New Yorker in the middle of it. And still, when I went on the job market at the close of my second year, I got zero interviews. So that was a pretty hard slap in the face. And, you know, so when I say I stuck around for a third year as a Michener, fellow that was great it worked out just fine but that was not the plan you know the plan had been to get a teaching job and it it didn't happen and that's kind of you know i think that market is still really tough and that that is just the reality of the of the situation um so okay, it was a mixture of all those things well you mentioned you know maybe how things have changed a little bit and like you said i don't think that that teaching market has changed much other than maybe it's gotten even more difficult to find positions. So um, maybe you can speak to that a little bit more, just like how things have changed or what changes you've seen since your time in the MFA and your time now teaching at Eastern Washington. Um, I think, you know, from what I can tell, it's definitely become a more inclusive environment and probably a more nurturing environment. I think you know, when I was coming through the Iowa program, it was still, it wasn't quite like it was in like the seventies or the, you know, in the earlier days where teachers tended to kind of view the, the MFA cohorts as like their harem, you know, and there's just so much of that kind of rampant abuse and not just men, you know, it's it, kind of everyone was doing this sort of thing. And there wasn't, it wasn't real student centered. I don't think. You know, it seems to me like that's been one of the main changes is that it's become much more student-centered and more inclusive. Um, I know that in our program, that's definitely been the effort that, that we've really focused on is to, to make the program more inclusive and definitely more student-centered than what I experienced as a student in any program that I went to. I also did one, I should mention too, I did one semester at University of Arizona in between, um, you know, just because I, I was adrift and, and looked to any program I could get into in January of that year. And I got into University of Arizona. So I spent one semester there and I had a great time. And then I got admitted to Iowa and took off and went to Iowa 
with them sort of cursing me all the way up there, but that was, um, you know, so I feel like I, I got to know a bunch of different programs and I was married to a poet at the time who went to Brown. So I got to know that program really well. She dropped out and then we moved to university to, for her to go to UC Davis. So I got to know that program as well before we got divorced. So yeah, I mean, I got to know a lot of those programs in the different kind of culture in each one. So once winter hit in Iowa City, were you cursing yourself for leaving Arizona? Sometimes, yeah, it was <laughs> dark. It was really, it's dark and cold. And, and um, but, you know, the nice thing about where I lived, I mean, this, this is, again, something that you're not going to find. This guy who rented me this apartment never wanted to cash his rent checks. He was this eccentric old guy. Um, and the houses have been, since have been torn down. He, he was a hippie. And it was like an old hippie and he had these two properties that his father had built and they, and sort of Jerry rigged into two duplexes. ZZ Packer took my apartment after I left. Um, <laughs> and I think he charged her rent, you know, of, of all things, but the whole time, uh, you know, I mean, he charged me rent. It was supposed to be, you know, set amount every month, but he just wouldn't cash the checks and, and, and he was free. You know, it was included because he didn't, he hadn't figured out how to separate between the two apartments. So I had the thermostat and I just kept it cranked up for both of the units. <laughs> and so it was free heat and free rent. And so in some ways, winter was like whatever. Um, but it was still dark and cold and walking to class was, you know, cold. <laughs> so having that experience, all of these programs that you kind of dipped your toe into, then you went to Iowa and now teaching at Eastern Washington, I, I feel like you have an interesting perspective. You've gained a view of the MFA from like a lot of different angles. And one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you was because of an article you wrote for Poets and Writers called The Teachable Talent, Why Creative Writing Can Be Taught. And in this essay, you talk a lot about your experience as an MFA professor, and you kind of tackle this open question in this industry, which is, can writing be taught? But you say in the essay that you don't like this question and you argue that it's not even the right question we should be asking. So what should we be asking? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a long time ago I wrote that article. I, um, I still think it's true. It, it's, it's, a, it's a puzzling question. Why do we ask? I mean, of all the arts, it's the only one that people ask, can you really teach this? You know, no one asks, can you teach the violin? Of course, you, you know, like if you want to learn the violin, you're going to get lessons. Right. If you want to learn how to paint, you're going to go to painting class. But people think, huh, writing, you should just know how to do that. And it, it is a weird, there is this weird disjunction uh, that among the arts, it's the one that people seem to think you should just be able to do it, which has some maddening consequences, you know, like where you meet, I don't know, you meet doctors who, who you know, they find out you're a writer and they say, oh, you know, that's so cool. I think I'm going to take next year off and write my novel. And, you know, my response is like, yeah, I think I'll take next year off and, you know, learn how to operate on people, <laughs> you know, as if there's no sort of special set of skills or like anything right. that you could that you could study and actually break apart. And then it takes a great deal of skill. And I think it's because the medium is language and we all use language all the time and it's stories and we all tell stories all the time. And so the notion is like, if I know how to use language and I know how to tell stories, I don't need anyone. To, I don't need anyone's help. It should be as easy as watching a TV show. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the better question to ask would be like, how do we teach creative writing? What are the better, better, the sort of best models and strategies for teaching it? Because obviously it can be taught. I mean, 
you see the results. Not everyone has to go to an MFA program to learn how to write, but it's definitely true that if you go to an MFA program, it's going to accelerate your process. It's going to be exponential. You're going to, right. you're going to go that much faster. You're going to learn that much faster. It's not a matter of being indoctrinated or like someone waving a wand over your head or um, learning the secret handshakes or anything like that. It's just like any other art form. You're going to learn some things that help you do the job better, more quickly than you will if you work on your own, reading books and flailing away at it and asking your friends to read stuff and slowly piecing it together. You know, Sean Vestal is another student of ours who came through the program like that guy, Shan, and he's had all kinds of publishing success. He's a journalist and he, but he still writes a column for the Spokesman Review. That's kind of his bread and butter. And it had been for years, even before he did our program. And for years and years and years, he was trying to write short stories and sending them out. He was really close with Jess Walter. And it, it was within two years, two or three years of coming into our program that he was just suddenly became a really great fiction writer because of the instruction he was getting, because of the feedback from classes and the stuff he was learning. I, you know, and, and he'll tell he, if you talk to him, he'll tell you it's no surprise. Like, I think what he said was like, he was halfway through his first workshop. I think it was my workshop. He was like, oh, wow, this is just a whole lot harder than I thought it was. And I really have to take this shit seriously. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he wrote this story that was publishable, just yeah. like, boom, just like that. And that was after 20 years of trying to do it on his own. So that's the sort of thing that, that can happen. It is a little bit mysterious. It is a little bit alchemical because you're working on your own. You know, whenever you're working, on a piece of fiction or whatever, it is in this kind of vacuum. It's just you and the words. And so no one knows what's going on in that, in those moments of composition and inspiration. We can only comment on the fact on, on what we see afterwards. And so getting you to improve the process of whatever it is that's happening between you and the page, it's sort of like we're working over here and the writer is privately working within their own little bubble on the piece that they're working on. And all you get is the feedback, which comes after the fact, and then you have to adjust your process. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's part of what kind of makes it alchemical is that unlike where you're teaching someone how to play the violin, they're sitting right in front of you. You can just grab their bow arm and say, no, don't do that. Do this. People write alone. And so it's, it's a kind of herky-jerky process of getting them to learn how to compose the words at the page more effectively, more compellingly, more vividly, and more in alignment with what their vision is, really. And I'm sure it's different for every student, right? Exactly, yeah. Which probably makes it challenging, but also fun for you, I imagine, teaching it, right? It's always something new. Yeah, it's really, and it's every year, there are the people who you don't expect to surprise you and they do, you know, like it's the, you know, you, you can kind of tell who's, who's got an advanced kind of skill set coming into the program and that's anyone's guess how hard they're going to apply themselves, but you don't know with all the people who you admit every year who are sort of like, well, you know, they maybe have something going on. And then they're the ones that typically just surprise the hell out of you and that's the most inspiring part of teaching is is seeing that sudden like quantum leap like what happened to shan 
Furch with his stuff or what happened. Well, Sean had a fair amount of skill coming into the program, but it was nothing like what he left with. Um, and that happens, yeah, it happens every year. Well, in the article, you say that if MFA students tear down all defenses and hear the hardest news about their stories, they can and will grow as students at an astonishing rate. But you also point out in that same article that as an MFA student, your teachers disagreed about everything and that trying to find any kind of consensus in their feedback on your work would have made you crazy. And so you say you had to learn to follow your gut as a writer when you were in that program. So what advice do you have for MFA students who are trying to balance these two seemingly opposing ideas? It's a really great question. Um, You know, I think I would bear in mind this one piece of advice I got from uh, one of my instructors. I can't remember which one. He said, if you're, when you're in a workshop and your piece is up for discussion, listen to everything that everyone is saying, take it all in. If you can actually use 5% of what you hear in the story itself on your next draft of it, like line edits, comments, where to expand, where to cut, all that kind of stuff, how to refocus, 5% of what you hear will actually be applicable. The other 95% you should tune out. I would say keep that in mind, but at the same time, be aware that that other 95% of unuseful information that you're hearing is later going to be useful. It's going to kind of sink in at like a cellular level and start to inform you about how to approach the next piece so that more readers understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. You just, you get better at, at knowing how the reader responds to the marks on the page. And the process of workshopping is kind of indirect People come into it thinking, I've got a story. I want my classmates to tell me how to make it finished and publishable. Right. And that's it. And it's just sort of, I, I guess it's sort of like the, like the transmission model of learning. Like, here's my story. I want you to tell me how to fix it. That's not really what happens in a workshop. You present work and it's the best thing you can do at this particular moment. And the process of hearing it critiqued and hearing where it fell short. And deciding whether it's even worth trying to revise. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. That process is what's teaching you. And you have to be patient. You, you know, like in the sciences, most experiments fail. Most hypotheses fail. That doesn't mean that they're unuseful. It means that, you know, you now know what you don't need to do next time with, with your next experiments. So all of, you know, every, basically all research is useful. Every piece you write is useful even if it's unpublishable. And Frank, you, you know, Frank Conroy would always say, your good work is related to your bad work. And don't think just because you wrote one good story that everything from now on is going to be good because it isn't. You're still, you're going to fail again. And so knowing that, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Like you, you want to, you learn pretty quickly. I think like who in the classroom says something and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that I, I, I relate to what you're saying about how to, how to fix this story or how to change something, you know, or you feel inspired by a suggestion from one of your classmates. Pay attention to that. You know, pay attention to those feelings. Frank would do a thing at the close of workshop where he would take all of the comments from all the students and he would hold them for a week. So you didn't give them back to the, to the author. You gave them to him. 
And then he'd give them back to the author the following week. And I always thought that was like a weird, sort of weirdly controlling thing to do. But I occasionally give my students the option of doing that because what I learned in the process was actually kind of helpful because it gives you a, a week of sort of chilling out and a cooling effect so that when you go and look back through those notes from all your classmates, you're not just going to throw them across the room and say, you know, screw you, I'm not going to do any of that. Mm. It, it sinks, sinks in a little better because you have that much distance from it. Um, so, you know, I mean, you got to follow your gut, but you also got to pay attention to those people who really annoy you and kind of hear them, you know, because there may be something to pay attention to it in it or not. Well, one thing that's surprised me coming into the MFA program, getting into workshops for the first time, was that not only did my writing improve, but my reading improved. And reading other people's work, but also seeing how people were reading my work changed how I read my own work. And so what I found also, you know, going back to that idea that like just because you wrote a good story doesn't mean the rest of the stories you write are going to be good. I found that my tastes were changing and I had a higher bar for myself and suddenly none of the stuff I was writing was reaching that bar. I, I don't know if I have a question here, if I'm just like treating you as my therapist now, but what I, <laughs> what, what I found was that, you know, I was approaching my work differently and I had this new set of standards that had somehow, I'd somehow created in the, in the workshop. Like, I don't know if that's a common thing that you see or. I think that everything you just said is, is all part of the process. The workshop process is not a one way street. It's not just like, it's not just about I'm going to present my story and I'm going to get feedback. Right. It's also about the fact that you're providing feedback to all your classmates. You're doing more of that, actually, than you are getting feedback. And that's an important skill. Developing those skills for how to look at an unfinished piece of work, find what you like about it, find where its strengths are, and then talk about strategies for making it better. And what I find is like, Students become better at that faster than they become good at writing their own stuff. Mm -hmm. There's there's often this kind of disjunction where you have, um, you know, a student who's a really, really good, sharp, smart, perceptive, insightful critic who can't write a story yet. And that that often you see that often. And to me, that's a sort of like a growing pain of like it's part of the process in learning how to critique other people's stuff you will become a better critic of your own work. And then eventually you're going to hit that point where you can look at your own story as if it wasn't yours and know exactly what you want to do to make it better. And that's part of the process. And then like you're saying, your own tastes will change and your own standard will change and get higher and better and more refined. And what, what I find is like the culture of the workshop itself, it becomes an important factor. Like if you have a student in the class who writes a kick-ass story, all of a sudden you'll see everyone kind of raise their own level. It has a sort of, it has an effect that the, you know, like when Sean Vestal was in the program, all of a sudden there were a bunch of people who wanted to write these kind of magical stories and they saw how he was doing it and they watched him go from someone who wasn't writing particularly good stories, suddenly he was writing good stories like, hey, if he can do it, I can do it mm. kind of feeling. And a, and a whole bunch of people became interested in writing fiction like that for a brief period of time. And that, you know, that's exciting. It, it creates its own little culture and its own little weather as, as students come through the program. Well, speaking of culture and, and kind of going back to that idea that if, if writing isn't teachable, then it becomes this really solitary process in which you're just flailing on your own. You talk about in that article how 
one of the most important aspects of an MFA to you is the culture and community. You say that you encourage students to form a long-term network of friends and readers, and you stress over and over how important this will be in the coming years after the MFA. So in your experience, why is this so important? I think, you know, one of the thing that one of, I mean, I mentioned this in the article and I think it's, it's, um, it is one of the, one of the key ingredients for why MFA programs work is that they remove a lot of the existential questions that have to do with writing. Like, why am I doing this if no one's paying any attention at all? Um, and being in an MFA program completely, it's artificial, but it takes that question away. You have to write a story because there's one due, you know, and if you don't, you're going to disappoint your classmates and your teacher. Right. So all of a sudden, you're not wondering about the bigger question of where does fiction fit in the world and why does anyone write fiction and who's ever going to read this thing? All those questions kind of become anesthetized for a minute. And when you leave the program, it can be a real, a real, um, it can be a real slap in the face to realize those questions never went away and you still have to answer them and you still have to deal with writing out there in the cold and having those friends who went through the same experience and have the same kind of vocabulary and same, you know, anecdotes to refer to and lessons to call up and, and who, you know, from their work have a, at least a somewhat of an aesthetic overlap. So they get your stuff. It just kind of gives you an umbrella to stand under and keep thinking, you know, keep tricking yourself into thinking that there's real purpose and meaning to the whole process, which just keeps you at the page. Mm -hmm. And and then it's also really critically important because all the things that you learn in the MFA program about how other people read your fiction and how what you need to do in order to engage an audience and keep them engaged those lessons can kind of fade in your memory and you can go back to writing stuff that's much more like, I think of it as writer-based where it becomes more obscure and more sort of coded. If you don't have readers to check in with, if you don't have someone to send your story to and say, Hey, is this making sense at all? And they can respond to you and say, yeah, it does make sense. But what the hell were you doing in this scene? And you realize like, yeah, well, I, I know why he didn't get that. I didn't explain it well enough, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that it, it's really important that you have readers to, to check in with ongoingly. Um, and it's tricky to find the right people to um, exchange work with. And you, sh- you know, I think you have to be prepared for a lot of hit and miss um, at least in my experience, you know, I mean, I've had people who were terrific readers for me when I was, studying side by side with them in the workshop. And then once I left, they turned into people who never respond. And there's nothing more sort of damaging to your work if you send someone a story and they just never answer you. So it one of the one of the key ingredients for finding someone who's a good reading reader for you is someone who will answer you. <laughs> well before students can attend and or graduate from an MFA program, of course they have to get into one. And Having established in the article your belief that writing can be taught, you say that when you're reading application materials, you're asking yourself one question, which is, who here is teachable? So what do you believe are the attributes that make someone teachable? And what do you look for in an application that demonstrates someone has those attributes? It's always a little bit of a mystery. And, and it's, and you always, I always get surprised by the people who come into the program. But yeah, I think, you know, in some ways 
I'm looking at, I mean, I'm looking at data first, you know, look at academic record, general, like life facts, age, you know, stuff like what have you done in your life? And, and that doesn't tell you a whole lot, but it, it, but it does give you a little bit of a sense of some important things. Um, I think the personal statement in a lot of ways is very important, but it's not by itself going to be the only thing to look at. But, you know, in the personal statement, I'll be looking for someone who has someone who's, who's, I mean, it's a, it's a subjective call, but you're looking for a tone that seems honest and sort of unpretentious and really clear about why the student wants an MFA what they're hungry to learn, what they think they're going to learn, and what sort of, I mean, the thing, the, the things I, that sort of tip me off, they don't, they're not deal breakers, but, you know, if someone wants to use the personal statement to give me like the pitch of their book or the elevator pitch of their novel that they're writing, like, that's not the spot for this. Mm-hmm. This is where I want to hear about what you think you don't know yet and why do you think you don't know it? And what are you inspired by when you read? And, you know, what? how do you see an MFA program getting you closer to your ideal of like the fiction that you really want to write? How, how am I, what are you asking for from me? Like, what help are you hoping to get from me and from the program? And that, you know, it's tricky. You know, most, most personal statements are fairly neutral. Um, the ones that begin with, you know, I've always, I've wanted to be a writer since I was in kindergarten. That's usually kind of a flag, like, no, that's not where to start. I mean, maybe it's okay, but I'm not so interested in that. What I want to know more is like, what did you read last year? And, and why do you think, you know, why do you think an MFA program is going to help you to the next level in your writing and why this program in particular, like, what is it about the the region or the instructors or the course offerings or any part of it. You know, some people will apply here because they have a personal attachment to the region. Some people have absolutely no idea and, you know, call it Spokane when I call them up, Um, you know, and that's fine too. It's, it takes, takes all, it takes everyone to make a good class basically. So it's a puzzle. And then you look at the fiction too, and you're, I guess I'm looking for kind of raw skills. You know, can you write dialogue? Can you write, are there places where you seem really excited by what you're writing? Um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's guesswork to a, to a certain degree. And then there occasionally, probably the last thing I'll look at would be the letters of reference because they tend to just generally be glowing. What everyone, you know, you're going to ask the teacher to write something really glowing and they're going to write it. But, it, but they can be helpful. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get letters that really kind of distill everything you need to know about this candidate. And that's helpful. So it sounds to me like you're looking for someone who has some skills already on the page. But then on top of that, you're looking for someone who can demonstrate in these application materials that they're actively thinking critically about their own work and engaging with writing that's already out there. And they have the desire and the discipline to work towards getting better once they're in the program. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, some of it too, if there's a, if there's kind of a, uh, like a, a borderline kind of squint, like, I don't know, maybe this, maybe, maybe, maybe not. 
that stuff can become clearer in phone conversations. Once I've kind of gotten over the hump of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to admit you, I have questions. It becomes clearer in the phone conversations too. Like, um, especially with people, you know, we don't just admit people who have a background in creative writing or literature. Sometimes there'll be a really interesting applicant who's, you know, background is all in the sciences or something Mm -hmm. and they really, really want to write and they seem to have some of the skills to do it. Then it's going to become a, a question of talking to them on the phone and figuring out how, how are you going to make that fit work? Well, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to try to demystify the MFA experience so that listeners can make more informed decisions about whether this is the right path for them or not. And it seems to me that there's a lot of confusion specifically around the MFA application process and what professors are looking for as they comb through these applications. So we went on social media this week and we asked our listeners to send us their questions for you. And the majority of those questions we received were about the writing sample, which makes sense, I think, because there's this idea that the writing sample is by far the most important part of your application. So A.D. Al and Candace Hausa want to know what makes a writing sample stand out to you when you're reading. Are you looking more at specific things like the craft, the voice or theme within the piece? Or are you looking for strength in a variety of areas within the piece? I'd say, first of all, they're they're right that the writing sample is the most important piece of the application. More important than the academic record. It's more important than your reference letters or your personal statements. All, all, All the things are important, but that is the most important piece of it. And the most successful writing samples are ones that I have to finish. So whatever that takes, sometimes it's the the voice. Yes, the voice has to be compelling. The language should be compelling. It should be free of technical errors. Technical errors aren't a deal breaker either, but they definitely kind of make you squint for a second. I think "Mm, you you don't know how to punctuate dialogue yet. Hmm. Okay, that's we can teach you that, but maybe you should know that already. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... On the like, that's a sort of an obvious low hanging fruit kind of thing. But still, even if you don't know how to public punctuate dialogue, there may be like really arresting descriptions. There may be a voice there that seems really interesting, and there may be a sense of like how a, a story is strung together in such a way that I have to get to the end of it. I feel compelled. Whatever that sort of mysterious thing is that makes a piece of writing feel compelling all the way to the end. So the most successful pieces are the ones that I have to finish. The the ones where I where my interest sort of slides away, I'm going to still read, but I'm going to start reading in a different way. I'm going to start reading in terms of like, okay, is there a good descriptive sentence here? Can I I'm going to skip ahead and look for some dialogue. Can the can this student write dialogue? Stuff like and then I'll kind of skip to the ending and see like, okay, so I see the conflict that you've set up in the beginning of the story. How are you going to resolve it? become much more sort of focused on just how much is the, how much is this writing sample meeting basic expectations? Um, Well, you mentioned that the best pieces are those that you have to finish. We actually had a listener who wants to know, Lu Chung wants to know if you read every applicant's entire portfolio or if readers tend to read the first couple pages and decide whether or not to continue, because we know you all get a ton of applications. So um, what's your practice here? So my practice would be, I mean, 
it, I mean, it does get kind of exhausting after a while. So I, I definitely try to pace myself mm-hmm. so that I give everyone a fair shake. But even so, there's, you know, there's definitely more excitement at the beginning of the cycle than at the end. Um, but not, not necessarily, even by the time I'm getting to the applicants whose last names start with U and W and what, you know, I'm still, I'm still admitting some of those people and still pretty excited about what I'm reading. But um, basically with, with every aspect of the writing life, when you submit your stuff to an editor, an agent, they get even more stuff to read than we do. The first thing they're looking for is a reason to stop reading. And so, yeah, we're, we're not quite in that position because we're still looking for people who have raw talent. So I'm not so much looking for a reason to stop reading, but I'm looking for how to read what's coming. And so, yeah, some of them, you know, they're, if it's if it's really clear that there's so many sort of technical errors and so many kind of like conceptual flaws and sort of just a really benighted sensibility about how people um, how people are or what literature can do, if you can tell that within two three pages, you start skimming to make sure that it's not satirical or that there's not you know if there's a, a second piece maybe the second piece is much stronger than the first one. So you do start skimming if if there's sufficient evidence that this person's not ready for an MFA. But most people who that's not the majority of people, I'd say that's like maybe 10% of what we get or 15%. And then the majority of them are kind of in a middle range where it's hard. You you need to keep reading. Like you you really need to do a more thorough evalu- evaluation of what you're seeing. And the best ones are the ones that make you forget that you're evaluating and they, and you're just caught up and you're like, hell yeah, I want that person to come into this program. This story just, I couldn't stop reading it. So you mentioned how sometimes you'll, you'll read one story and it's not working, but you'll read the second one and there's, there's something there that interests you. So do you in general recommend that applicants try to turn in more than one story? Yeah, I think, you know, if depending on what the limit is for whichever program, the page limit or word count that you're applying, it can work if you have one really strong 25 page story or whatever. Sure. Put all your eggs in that basket and go. Mm-hmm. If you know for sure it's your best work. But if you have a, you know, sort of you have one, you have two really different pieces, I would say it's not a bad idea to try both of them. Flash fiction, you know, there are people who write only flash fiction that, and it, it can, that, that can, that can, um, it can help you and it can hurt you, you know, because it becomes easier to, to sort of fly through those applications, but they can be good too. It's a fluid process, isn't it? Yeah. And it's really hard to generalize about it, but yeah, I think if you can, if you do have some variety, um, that can be helpful. Definitely. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely... There are cases where it's like one story seems much stronger than the other one. And we'll talk about that when I, when I meet with the other faculty who are reviewing applications. And like, well, this, but this one's a lot better. Look, you know, look at the promises shown here and that, right. that can be a factor. Well, um, let's talk about the personal statement, as you call it. Some programs call it a statement of purpose. And we might be overlapping a little bit with some stuff we've already said, but we got a question from DZ Amaka who wanted to know what makes an applicant's personal statement stand out to you. Yeah, I think, you know, not to repeat myself too much, but honesty, clarity, maturity, um, those are the things that I'm looking for. But 
it doesn't mean that it can't be, it doesn't mean it has to be humorless mm. or like somber. So like there, I still remember this one statement. This is a year we had a, just a ton of applications and this person's personal statement popped off the, you know, stood out because what she did was she's like, okay, let me tell you what's on my desk and why it's here. And then she proceeded to write about all the objects on her desk and their personal sort of attachment to her writing process. And I thought, well, no one else has written that particular essay for me ever. That's And it's weird and vivid. And it was kind of funny. You know, she had some comical stories attached to some of the things that were on her desk. She was admitted, you know. So if you have a sort of a, a quirky, funny way of talking to us about um, where you came from, there's there's one guy who wrote, who described his own birth scene in his personal, you know, and it was like way over the top, but you know, he was great. We admitted him and he turned out to be one of the wackiest students we've ever had in the program. So it's, it's, it's open. Like it's a creative thing and you should feel free to be creative with it. If that works for you. Well, professor Spatz, you're in for it now because all of your personal statements this year <laughs> are going to be, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, that would that make it like really fun to read as opposed to like, you know, I, I first started writing in first grade and, you know, like that would, that would be not the place to begin. Well, you know, we had a listener, Mia Testa, who wanted to know just about this, like, should the personal statement be academic or can it be creative? So I think that answers her question pretty well. And then we had some other listeners, Jenna Shapiro and... Lauren Zambrini, who were wanting to know if there are anything that they should avoid in their statement of purpose. So Jenna wanted to know if it was okay to name professors in the statement of purpose. And Lauren was wanting to know if she can mention the fact that teaching is one of the draws for the MFA, or if that's going to make it seem like she's not serious about the writing. I don't think there's any harm in mentioning people's names, especially um, if there's a personal connection, like if there's someone I know and they said, Hey, you should apply to this program and tell Greg I sent you or something, mm -hmm. then that's real. You know, you should do that for sure. Um, and no, there's no harm in naming people who you've enjoyed working with, but at the same time, it's going to, if that person wrote you a letter of reference, mm -hmm. then that's going to be information we don't really need because we'll see the letter of reference there. And as far as like teaching, same thing is kind of true. For us, anyway, we require that you, if you want to teach, you have to send like a, a forget what they call it, a teaching statement okay. about mm -hmm. what's your background, what what sort of and anything sort of tangentially related to teaching can be included as background okay. to prepare you for it. So for us, we have a specific area where you can address those, you know, you can address those elements of your application. But I don't know, other programs may not. So yeah, it's not a bad idea, but it's really not. I mean, I think this, the assumption is when we're reading stuff, the serious applicants want some kind of teaching GSA. So you don't have to tell us that. We know that you probably want that. Um, really, this is the place to focus on who are you? Why do you want to come here? And why do you want an MFA? And why now? And what do you think you're going to learn? As far as like, flags you know these days there's there can be kind of an overemphasis on identity which it can be helpful like we do you know we're trying to be we we encourage 
uh, we, we want to be more inclusive with the program as much as possible. And, and so it can be good to know coming into it if there's something we should know about your identity um, and how you identify as a writer. But at the same time, if it becomes like every other word has something to do with a politicized term that uh, relating to your identity, then, then that kind of, that seems like that's where your focus is maybe more than art, maybe more than craft, more than writing a short story. And that, again, it's not going to rule you out, but it, it kind of tips us off as to where your priorities might be. And it maybe overplays your hand, I guess, you know, cause that's not the only thing we're interested in. Yes. We want diversity. We want, we want, underrepresented groups more of them in the program but that's not all we want we still want you know we want you to be a good writer and we want you to be here for series you know to, that you want to get better at your craft what about mentioning professors that are in the program you're applying to because i remember wondering this like there were professors there that i was really excited to work with but i worried that like is this going to come off as me just like sucking up to these professors in this personal statement it doesn't, I, you know, it, it's something that we sort of skim pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it what it does, I think if someone actually is genuine in it and they've read your work and they're like excited about a particular thing um, that you do or something in your subject matter that's inspiring to them, that can be helpful to know. But yeah, no, it, it most of the time it does sort of, I think, probably come across as more like pandering, I guess. Mm-hmm. If it's not genuine, if it's not um, specific. If it's genuine and specific, it's helpful. Frank Turner has a question related to letters of recommendation. So Frank's been out of school for a while, and so he's not sure who to ask for a letter of reference. So do you have any advice for him? Uh, That's a tough question. Um, If you can, you should try to have someone, you know, even if it means calling up, uh, you know, a professor from years back and see if they'll write you a letter. Or see if you can dig up an old letter of reference and then try to find some people more, you know, current in your life who can write for you. But honestly, letters of reference are like the least important part of an application. So don't lose sleep over it because, mm. you know, it, they tend to be kind of low information and they tend to um, not add a whole lot to the picture that we can't get from the academic record and from the work itself. I was also a student who had been like 10 years removed from undergrad when I applied for my MFA. And in retrospect, I wish I would have sought out a workshop that I could attend, even if it was just for a few weeks to like workshop one story and get that a little bit of that experience before jumping into the MFA. And I'm wondering if that might be a good way to one, hone your writing sample and two, get a letter of recommendation potentially. That's an excellent, that's a really, really good suggestion. Not just, you know, in terms of like getting letters of reference, it it can help if you have a really good experience, say at like the community of writers where I teach um, in California or Bradlow or one of these places, you could get some really good tips from your instructor about, oh, you should apply to this program that you never heard of in New Mexico or someplace like that, where I have a friend who I think would be really interested in your work because of this thing that you're doing here that you know, you can get really specific instruction from someone it might be helpful to to do that and give you a little taste of um, what is the workshop life like. So, yeah, it can bring you up to speed. If, you, yeah, if you've been out of the academic circles for like 10 years or whatever, that's probably a, a smart thing to do to kind of 
get yourself prepped for the application cycle. Not a bad idea at all. Jenna Shapiro wants to know what your advice would be for applicants who have applied before and are going through the process again this round. How should they approach their applications? Should they approach them differently? That's a good question. You know, some years we have students who are on our wait list for a long time. And then ultimately I tell them, sorry, we don't have a spot for you. Please do apply again. Mm. And they will reapply and sometimes update with new work. Yeah, usually they do. And I think if you have better work to submit in your second round and you've been invited to try again, absolutely good idea to do that. Um, and uh, you know, and I've, I've heard from other people, but this is, this is kind of, I'm at a remove from it, but you know, like for instance, there was one year that there was a guy who was really one of our strongest applicants that cycle. And I really wanted to bring him into the program. Um, and he told me he'd applied to 20 programs the year before and been rejected from every single one of them. And, you know, as we were talking on the phone, it was like in this year, I just did it. I don't know what he did differently. But um, he was accepted everywhere. So just because you're rejected one year doesn't mean you shouldn't try again. If his if his example is is um, anything meaningful, um, certainly worked for him. He didn't come to our program. I think he went to Cornell or someplace like that. Um, and so he was his head was spinning. It was like last year I was rejected everywhere, and I sent this new batch of story. I thought this, he hadn't applied to our program in the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, had no idea what he did differently, but he his, it was a real strong application. I think you learn from round one and you got rejected. Try again, better work, better personal statement, you know, get more feedback. Like you're saying, maybe go to some conferences, go join some writing groups, get a little more feedback on your stuff. Try again. What a difference a year can make, really. I mean, if you're reading a lot, writing a lot, really, you know, putting your heart into it. (laughs) I mean, from personal experience, a year can make a world of difference. Huge difference. Yeah. So Liz Jester asked, how much does it matter if an applicant has been published or not? If you don't already have a literary publication, does this hurt your chances getting into a program? I would say not at all. I mean, it's great if if you're being published already, but... No, there's no expectation that you would be, at least not for our program. I think possibly other programs, there would be more of an expectation that you'd be publishing stuff. You know, when I was at Iowa, I read, you know, part of the thing that you do as a teaching writing fellow is you read the incoming applications. And so the students are reading the applications first and you get these cartloads, boxes and boxes of folders and you read them. Well, probably now it's all online, but... Back in the day, it was red folders and blue folders, and and you read them all, and um, and you have you have no power. You're just reading them and screening them for the faculty who then make the decisions. And I was shocked by some of their decisions, but there were you know there were people applying with like this is my first story that was published in the Atlantic, and here's my other story that was published in Plowshares, and reading I was just like this is terrible. I don't like it at all. I don't care where it was published, <laughs> you know. And that person was, wasn't admitted, you know, or someone yeah. who'd never published anything and whose work didn't seem that promising to me was admitted by Marilyn and Jim and Frank. I don't, I don't know what their final process was, but if you have published stuff, cool, but don't worry about it if you haven't. 
So Tara Ellenberg has a question about deciding where to apply. So you had mentioned how um, you'll call up students sometimes or um, this can be a tricky thing, I think, for applicants because, you know, schools usually say don't come to campus unless you've been admitted. It can be hard to like contact professors who are really busy to ask questions. But Tara wants to know what kinds of questions applicants should ask programs if they're able to talk to them to kind of gauge whether or not the program will be a good fit for them. So this might be a question actually for maybe after you've gotten into some programs and you talk to people on the phone or you go visit, what are questions that you suggest applicants ask before deciding where to go? That's a really good question. Um, before you've been admitted to the program, you're probably going to have a hard time getting answers because people are super busy. But at the same time, if if I'm hearing from someone who's who's writing and saying, hey, I'm really, really interested in your program and making applications this year. I wonder if I could sit down and chat with you for a minute. Your, you know, your program is the top of my list or something. I, that that kind of stands out to me, and I may pay a little more attention to your application by the time it shows up. It doesn't mean that you'll be admitted, but it means I know you were serious even before I read your pages. I know that you're serious about this program in particular. So that can be helpful. But once you've been admitted, I, I mean, for our program, I talk to everybody. I call everybody, and we have lots of conversations in it. And part of it becomes kind of like a matchmaking thing because we have, mm. you know, GSA pro, I don't mean romantically, but we have, you know, we have positions kind of, I've got connections all over campus with like, you know, like the, the publications office or the McNair scholars office or the writer's center, you know, you might, I might not have a teaching position for you, but we have these other jobs that also come with tuition waiver and stipend. And pay exactly the same as teaching. In some ways, it's better than teaching because it's going to be less sort of consuming of your soul and time than teaching freshman composition. Um, and so I'm, I'll be talking to people about like what their skill set is. Do you have the background to work in the publicity office or something? And getting to know them better, you know, getting to know like how, how, how hungry are they to come to this particular program and why? And in that process, too, uh, I always make sure and I, I would suggest that, you know, with really with every program that you apply to, you want to ask for this. You want to ask for the names of current students and contact information and call them and email with them. And I make sure that the students who I provide their contact, you know, the ones that I give contact information for, they're, they're going to be honest. They're going to be unvarnished in what they think. And they're going to be clear about. What's it like to move to Spokane? What's it like to live in this kind of red corner of a blue state? Um, what What's housing like? What's the weather like? What are the classes like? You know, just honest answers. You want that information coming into the program. And if a program won't give you that information, that's, I think most of them will. I would hope they would. Um, it's part of the process. Like it's, you need to do your vetting as a student. You want to ask, what is it like? And will I be happy there, basically? And only you know the particular types of questions you would ask to figure that out. But it is a vetting process on the student's side as well. Um, you know, we're, you know, there's some confusion, I think, with students when they look at that term fully funded and they're looking only at fully funded programs and thinking that's the only place where you can be fully funded and that's not the case. You can be fully funded as a student in a program that's not fully funded. 
fully funded program only means that everyone who comes into the program is funded. We don't have a fully funded program, but our students who are funded are fully funded. Right. So you want to find out that's probably the thing that people ask about the most is like the nuts and bolts of how many fees do I have to pay? How much does my tuition waiver cover? What's the rent cost? How much of a stipend do I get? Is the stipend renewable? You know, all the, you want to know all that stuff. And so you want to ask all those questions about the, the financial reality of attending the program. Yeah. And the, you know, personal reality of whether you're going to be happy living in that place because that's going to affect your work, right? Yes. And especially if it's a place you have no familiarity with, like a lot of people come here from, you know, I don't know, Kentucky or, you know, for a while we had several students from Missouri, um, people from New England states, and they have no idea what it's like here. So there's a lot of vetting that you have to do to figure out what is it like? And could I be happy there? We got a student, poor student who came here from Florida without having lived anywhere else. And I just saw her recently, I'm like, get ready. It's going to be cold. You, <laughs> you will need lots of coats. <laughs> she's loving it. You know, she's, you know, the novelty of snow will be, you know, she'll be really excited about that for a while. I have a few students who have told me they've, they've never seen snow before. And I tell them, you're going to love it the first time. <laughs> and, then, and then you'll get sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the last question comes from Twitter where we asked, what are people wondering about applying for MFA programs? And Aaron Gilbreth asked, why bother? Now, I have a feeling Aaron was being a tad snarky, but I think it's a good question. There are a lot of people out there who don't see the point in getting an MFA. So what do you think? Why bother? I I mean, why bother? I guess the reason to bother is if you're really serious about dedicating two years of your life to writing and to making that the the primary focus in your life, it's the easiest and the best way to do that. And there's kind of, I don't think there is really a substitute for it. You can join writing groups, you can go to conferences, you can kind of cobble together um, something that will sort of give you the same kind of focus in your life. But being surrounded by other people who are doing the same, embarked on that same project of trying to write a good story, trying to write a good novel, it just has a global effect on how you think about the world. And the other reason to do it is if you need to move somewhere and kind of shake up your life. I mean, I'm really aware as I'm talking to people on the phone, it's a big sell. It's a big ask to get someone to move from Kentucky to Spokane. And so I want to be sure they really know what they're doing and why they want to do it. And it's exciting, but it's tough. And so the reason to do it is because it's exciting and it's tough and it's going to shake you up and it's going to change your life. If you want to change your life and change your focus on your craft and your work and really make it the primary focus, it's a good way to do it. And a kind of low impact in terms of like, especially if you get a teaching assistantship and you're not going to go into debt for a whole bunch of tuition expenses. Um, the, the stipend's probably not going to pay for your, you know, for everything. So you may end up incurring a little bit of debt, but um, maybe not. If you can afford it, it's life changing. That's why to do it. It's it truly is transforming, not just of your work, but who you are. You know, and so many people come into this program from wherever, from all over the place. And 
they may hate it at first, you know, they're like, God, I hate Spokane. It's so backwards and this and that and the other thing. And then 10 years later, I see them, they're still in town. And there's something about being immersed in the culture and then finding these friends and establishing, you know, we were asking about writing groups before. Every time I hang out with people, former students who are still in town, I discover that they're all in writing groups with each other that I had no idea. There have to be like maybe 20 of them in town. And they're all full of our students and other people. And some of them are like zooming in from wherever, but they're all keeping in touch and they're all part of a, like an ongoing culture, I guess. And so that would be the other reason to do it is to kind of just have that with you at all times going forward or the possibility of it. It may not happen, for you, but it certainly won't happen if you don't come. Professor Spatz, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy this time of year. Thank you so much for stopping by, for being open, honest, answering all these questions. I think they're going to be really helpful. Great. I hope so. And, and good luck to everyone applying. And I, I stand by it. I think it's really worth doing <laughs>